This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. Extreme heat kills more people per year than any other climate disaster. And it's a hidden threat, practically invisible compared to the torrential rain of a hurricane or drama of climate-fueled wildfires. Soaring heat caused by burning fossil fuels preys on the poor and exacerbates racial inequalities, revealing vulnerabilities in its wake. And there's a growing body of evidence that shows women and girls are disproportionately susceptible to heat health effects. That's right. Globally, women and girls represent 80% of climate refugees. They're more likely to be displaced, suffer violence, and die from natural disasters. Women get the short end of the stick in every way. And extreme heat is exacerbating and adding fuel to this profound inequality. That's Kathy Boffman McLeod, director of the Adrian Arsh Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. As temperatures rise, people get angry, more prone to fight. Gender violence increases and miscarriage rates go up. But Kathy says preventing heat deaths and other effects is possible. This is one of the most beautiful things about addressing this climate risk. You can solve this. People don't have to die from heat. The Arst Rockefeller Center has been funding chief heat officers throughout the world, people implementing projects to make cities more climate adaptive. People like Eleni Mirovili of Athens. We have to start designing cities and transportation in special ways and make sure that we have the right type of infrastructure that can support women as well as men. After we hear from Kathy, we'll travel to a few different places dealing with heat and hear about ways to mitigate it. From reviving an ancient aqueduct in Greece to building mud waddle houses in Uganda and putting shade and solar lights over an outdoor market in Sierra Leone. That's all coming up. And before we begin, one note about language. Extreme temperatures are commonly called heat waves. But the word wave implies we can just wait it out and it will pass. I mean, that's true. And those waves are becoming bigger and longer. I got a problem with that word wave. Yeah, and our brains are sort of hardwired to forget about these kinds of episodic difficulties, which means that we we need better systems to talk about heat. And one thing that Kathy and others are really advocating for is to have a naming system for heat events similar to the ones we use for hurricanes and other kinds of natural disasters, because it not only helps us talk about them in the moment, but also refer back to them and be able to compare different events over time. I also got a problem with natural disasters because they're not really natural anymore, but let's get on with this. Climate amplified. There you go. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association just upped its odds of an El Nino event, which, for the first time, could put us over 1.5 degrees of global warming set by the Paris Climate Accord. I asked Kathy how she reconciles this news with her work. I hate to say it, but I knew it already, and it's validation of our work, and it's it's also sad because we know exactly what to do, and we know how to do it, and we have the capital to do it and the policies. Uh, we don't have the political leadership to do it, and that's sad. The upside is that on the issue of addressing extreme heat, we do have solutions and Uh, things that we can do to protect ourselves. And so this is a mixed emotions story. And extreme heat kills more people per year than any other climate disaster, more than floods, fires, hurricanes that grab the headlines. And I kind of knew that, but didn't quite realize that deaths from severe heat increased 56% of the U.S. between 2018 and 2021. I wasn't aware of that before 
studying up for this episode. So how else does extreme heat affect people? Well, it affects the human body in profound ways, uh, and it affects people disproportionately. And that's one of the biggest um, elements of addressing climate impacts is it is um, an issue of climate justice that the story of extreme heat is a story of race and a story of discrimination. And when you think about the neighborhoods that um, are the environments in which people live, many of them are leafy and green in wealthy areas, and many of them are covered in black asphalt with very little bits of nature. And that makes a big difference on our health and um, exposure to extreme heat increases asthma. It means that you have to run the air conditioner more. And if you don't have air conditioning, that heat exacerbates underlying conditions that people have. And people in food deserts with little access to healthy food and health care end up having their conditions like diabetes or heart disease um, exacerbated by heat. And uh, the scary part is a lot of times these uh, deaths and illnesses are masked. You know, it's called the silent killer uh, for a reason. We, we don't hear it, we can't see it, and we don't have a lot of data that tells us. And so our numbers that you just cited, that's the best we can do. You know, oftentimes we have to model those numbers because we don't have the data to record it. Right. And we've learned recently from studies that those neighborhoods with lots of asphalt and urban heat islands are those neighborhoods that were redlined by banks and there were not loans given. And that was, there is a direct link between racism and heat in urban America. I have um, a, a good friend, Adam Freed, who is a adjunct professor at Columbia. And in his class, he talks about the fact that these treeless neighborhoods with lots of asphalt, um, it's racism that you can see from space. And that's such a dramatic imagery that that brings. Um, I, f I find that helpful. I talked to a urologist once who said, yeah, he sees an uptick in patients during high heat because people are not hydrating. And, you know, think about all the people who don't get to see a urologist or a doctor during an extreme heat event. What else happens? Workplace injuries, lost income. I think I remember one time Saul Xiong from UC Berkeley saying every day over, say, 90 degrees is like, you know, putting a $20 bill on fire uh, per person because of lost productivity, et cetera. Well, at the macro level, you know, we we work with vivid economics and we calculated uh, the worker productivity losses for the U.S. economy at one hundred billion dollars in 2020 as a baseline. So that's growing. And 18 percent of that loss is disproportionately borne by black and Hispanic workers in the South. Um, but we also looked at cities across the world and found that in New Delhi, a worker loses a quarter of their income every single day when they work outside. So they're losing a full quarter is evaporated. And in uh, Dhaka, 8% of their GDP of the city is lost to heat. And in Miami-Dade County, completely different setting, you know, their annual budget is $10 billion. The cost of um, heat to their economy, just that one dimension, you know, that's not business interruption or health care or infrastructure just worker productivity is $10 billion, the same amount as their entire annual budget. And all of this is silent and unfortunately a bit of a secret, which is 
you know, why I'm thrilled to be on your podcast today. In addition to disproportionate impacts due to race, extreme heat also has disproportionate impacts on women and girls around the world, often because they're the ones fetching water, working outdoors. Tell us more about that, how heat disproportionately affects women and girls. We work really closely with um, an organization called the Self-Employed Women's Association, and they're based in India, and they have 2.5 million women in the informal sector in 110 different trades. So think about um, waste recyclers or uh, market traders or construction workers, and we have um, learned very well their impacts, which mean they even have blisters on their hands from using tools that are not made for the conditions they're being used in. They have urinary tract infections, miscarriages, a rash that used to be a few months out of the year is now 12 months out of the year. Headaches, uh, it's, it's profound, and most of the time they're the primary breadwinner for their family. With these extreme temperatures, work has shifted to different times of the day to try to find cooler times. And so when there's a break, men can go back to work and women go home to take care of their kids, make dinner, clean up, put them to bed, and they can't go out again and work. And so they're missing an entire shift and they're missing all the money that comes with that shift. There's also research that shows across the board, bad things happen when humans get exceptionally hot and violence increases on all scales. There's more domestic violence in the, in the home. There's more people honking in the streets. There's more fights. There's even more interstate conflict. How does all of that affect women in their position of, of relative power in society? Those are all absolutely true. And um, exacerbating the physiological, the cultural. Women get the short end of the stick in every way. Culturally, domestic violence, eating last, being responsible for getting water, clothes that cover their bodies fully, being seen in many cultures as second or third class citizens. And extreme heat is exacerbating and adding fuel to this um, profound inequality. And we want to try to address that. And you mentioned investing in women and girls. We know that in, that all sorts of good things happen when girls stay in school and, and women are empowered. Uh, what are some solutions, particularly for heat in India or elsewhere, that can really address this disproportionate heat impact? One thing we know is that women reinvest 90% of what they make back into their community. So all boats rise when you invest in women and their economic viability and sustainability. And so in India with the Self-Employed Women's Association, we're testing um, a micro-insurance product that pays to their bank accounts when their health is threatened by extreme heat. And it's called the Extreme Heat income micro-insurance. And we've partnered with, with the Self-Employed Women's Association and Blue Marble, which is a, a private sector micro-insurance company. And we've developed this, this insurance. And the key thing is it pays right to their bank accounts. And we've combined it though. You know, when you think about these insurance approaches, they're risk, they're risk sharing or risk transferring. You also need to reduce the risk. And so we've included in the program physical things that can help protect the women, and they choose what these things are, including 
coolers to keep their water and their food and their produce from spoiling, um, cement water tanks that keep the water temperature and the the quality um, as it should be, tarps that cover their crops to keep them from roasting in the sun, gloves to protect their hands from the blisters that I described that the shipbreakers, the construction workers, and the um, waste recyclers experience. And then thinking about early warnings, they don't have access to good early warnings about heat waves. And so we're combining early warning system to the WhatsApp groups that they use to communicate with their grassroots leaders. And then lastly, there's an element of, of uh, financial inclusion. Uh, thousands of the women are new to having their own bank accounts. They're not banking through their father or their brother or their uncle. They have their own bank account. And so there are lots of things happening within this one initiative. And so we're putting a lot of stock into it. And it's just been underway for about 10 days. And that sounds really important because it's part of this trend in insurance called parametric insurance, which is to release money before the bad thing happens rather than after the hurricane hits. And so on the basis of a a forecast of a heat or an extreme weather event to try to get money into people's hands beforehand rather than after something we knew was going to happen, but they couldn't get help until the damage was done. Yes, a slight adjustment to that. So the parametric is something that pays out when an event happens and a forecast-based parametric, sorry about the jargon, but something that something that's going to give you money 3 or 4 days before the bad things happens is what we want. And we I was just in Ahmedabad and we met with several of the grassroots leaders that represent the women in the different trades and and these women themselves were in those trades and some still are. We asked we want to move this to a forecast-based product, meaning you get notice and you get paid beforehand, how would that change your decision-making? And that was so informative because we saw wild excitement about changing when they might work, uh, thinking about arranging their childcare differently, thinking about their food differently, lots of solutions they had of how they would handle if they got paid in advance of that heat and much better than waiting for the time that it happens or shortly after. And so the parametric pays when the heat wave is triggered and the forecast base means we can use a forecast to pay them. Um, and so we're our next Uh, round of the pilot will be testing the forecast based of the parametric. And so we're trying to get in front of it as much as we can. Insurance can be a real powerful lever here. Uh, One of your initiatives that started a couple of years ago has been naming heat waves the way hurricanes are named. mm -hmm. Beyond elevating the issue in the public consciousness, you know, what does that do? So as we know, heat waves are invisible and they're silent and they're called the silent killer. If heat waves are silent, how can we solve it? How can we prevent people getting sick and dying from heat? And every death from heat is preventable. This is one of the most beautiful things about addressing this climate risk. You can solve this. People don't have to die from heat. We need awareness. We need actionable guidance. We need understanding of our own health, how to recognize signs of heat, illness, and stress in other people. And we believe and now have some Um, early evidence that supports this, that giving heat events a name gives them the branding and the identity that they need. Other climate hazards are so telegenic, they're dramatic. You know, the palm tree is sideways in the hurricane and the car is floating down a street, you know, full of water in a flood, the landslide, the tornado. I mean, they're just grabbing your attention and heat 
you know, any aerial photo from one day to the next doesn't look any different. And it needs PR. And people pay attention to human names. And now I'm excited to say that soon we'll release our manuscript that shows the the evidence that naming Heatwave Zoe in Seville last summer was very successful in getting people to change their behavior and to think about the heat event differently. Right. There was a infamous heat wave. And I don't like to call it a wave because a wave has this idea that it comes and it goes. And this is more inexorable than that. But there was a heat wave in Europe, what, 15, 20 years ago that killed tens of thousands of people. And I, I don't have a name I don't have a name for it. There's, right? I can just have to describe it as that heat wave in Europe. There's no name that we can attach to it like we can Katrina or Ike or Sandy. And there's an archival purpose to that, too, because you remember what happened during Katrina or you remember what happened during Sandy. And so, you know, we have the heat dome heat wave of the Pacific Northwest from 2021 or the Labor Day heat wave in California. I mean, we need to name them. We need to keep them organized. We need to reference what happened to them. And so it's quite logical. And we don't name heat waves alone. We also what we're doing is pairing it with a health based heat warning system that projects the impact of a heat event on a specific community. So taking that data from that community combined with an algorithm that we've built with our chief heat science advisor and um, a, a science panel that takes nighttime temperatures, which are incredibly predictive of health events. So when you don't rest at night, when you don't get the sleep that you need for your brain to clean out, you wake up and you make mistakes, whether you're at a computer or you are working with machinery, your hand-eye coordination is off, you're tired, you make mistakes. Oftentimes people, you know, there are lots of deaths associated with sort of this sort of um, phenomenon. And uh, there's a, uh, maybe year ago, a study that looked at the uh, workers' comp data from the state of California that came to some very eye-popping conclusions about heat and worker injuries. And so the labor heat nexus is really strong. And so we're really leaning into understanding the economics of that because the worker loses money and the the company's losing money. And these are, this is a big opportunity for investing in better outcomes and protecting people. Right. And a lot of warehouses are not uh, built or air conditioned for this. Of course, building resilience to heat often means installing more air conditioning, which uses a lot of power. It can destabilize the grid. California's addressed that by bringing grid scale storage uh, online and perhaps using electric vehicles. But what about this vicious cycle of more heat and more air conditioning, which makes the whole thing worse? So there's a big movement for low emissions, no emissions, cooling, mechanical cooling. And it's not just the air conditioners. You know, we need, a, there's the cold chain is what it's called for food and medicine. You know, lots of medicines need to be kept at certain temperatures. We need to preserve and extend the, the shelf life of fresh fruits and vegetables. All sorts of health and well-being are, are depending on the cold chain in addition to the thermal comfort of our own bodies. We do have advancements in machines themselves to make them lower emissions. They do have waste heat also, so it's not just the emissions, but they have heat. But the other piece is the passive cooling, which is what we call things without uh, needing power, things that can cool. And that means nature is one of the biggest ways that we can do it. And one of the most cost-effective trees can make the difference. 
you know, there's this concept of tree equity that American Forests has coined and is, you know, looking at tree equity scores in cities around around the U.S. that thinks about the difference in a neighborhood with no trees and the same city not very far away can be as much as 15 degrees Fahrenheit cooler because of the trees. So when you think about passive cooling, you have trees, you have lighter surfaces. You know, when we paint roofs and streets white, they reflect and don't absorb. There are green roofs. So you put nature on the roof. Um, There are ways to design buildings for airflow. There's lots of ways to use water creatively so that you cool the air because it moves over the water. These very shallow little, almost looks like a puddle, but it's designed and engineered specifically for cooling a community. So we're looking at the combination of the passive cooling and the active cooling or mechanical cooling to try to bring down the demand. And then, of course, we want the power source for that mechanical cooling to be renewable. We need solar and wind to be powering it. And so, yes, we're going to need a lot more air conditioning, but we're going to try to do it in the very best way we can. Kathy Boffman-McLeod is director of the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center and senior vice president at the Atlantic Council. Kathy, thank you for sharing again the impacts of heat on women. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Greg. And thanks for doing the show. May it be the silent killer no more. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review or send a friend a link to this episode or even a whole playlist. Check out our new and improved website, climateone.org, which has new tools for sharing your own favorite episodes and creating playlists. Coming up, how the city of Athens is employing ancient infrastructure to help mitigate extreme heat. It really can make a, a difference between life and death. It, it, it's, it's a very significant lowering of temperatures. That's up next when Climate One continues. Eleni Miravili is the global chief heat officer for UN Habitat. In the summer of 2021, she was appointed as chief heat officer for Athens, and not a moment too soon. A few days later, the city experienced a very significant heat event with temperatures up to 45 degrees Celsius, around 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Miravili says that hot and dry summer also led to intense wildfires around the city. So it, be- it becomes kind of a, a vicious circle, right? So you have extreme heat and then you start having wildfires and the wildfires increase the heat and not only increase the heat, but they also increase the, the pollution and a real difficulty in breathing. So th- what I experienced was a, a kind of a post-apocalyptic scene where the, the skies were red and gray and brown because of the fires nearby and where ash was falling everywhere and where we couldn't breathe. I remember I had to wear my COVID mask to go to sleep because I, I breathing was um, was actually painful. It it felt like it was hurting my 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 lungs when I would breathe. So, um, and the Ministry of Health asked us not to leave the house for a few days because of of these uh, really high levels of uh, microparticle pollution that is extremely dangerous for the for our health. But the main thing was that it was extremely hot. It was extremely hot and the the streets were empty and uh, people had withdrawn inside. And um, it lasted for three weeks. And months later, we found out that several thousand people had died because of it. 
And what is interesting also is that, you know, the media was talking about the fires, very, very little about the heat. And and also the media never in Greece never actually mentioned the number of deaths. It was actually through Politico.eu uh, and a, a particular research that Politico did uh, independently that measured different levels of mortality in different countries during that summer that we actually found out what the numbers were. Well, I think you're hitting on some really important things that we've we've talked about on past episodes of Climate One regarding heat, which is that there is not the same awareness publicly about the dangers of heat as there are for things like hurricanes or tsunamis or, you know, other kind of major natural uh, disasters. And and yeah, there is not as good of accounting for the the deaths. I live in the southwestern part of the U.S. and there are excess heat deaths uh, here as well, especially in cities like Phoenix, the data is not very good, even from the morgues, you know, about what are the causes of, of deaths. And we know there are really harmful effects of heat on human bodies, especially when nighttime temperatures stay elevated. There's data for this um, because especially big cities that have a lot of concrete and asphalt tend to absorb heat during the day, radiate it back out at night, and, and they don't cool off the way some, some more rural or smaller cities do. What kinds of architectural and design solutions have been tried in Athens and other cities in the region to, to combat some of these effects? Athens is particularly densely built and densely populated. It's one of the most densely populated parts of Europe, and it's it has tons of cement and asphalt and, and not very many green areas or rivers or any kind of natural water uh, exposed in its surfaces. And that kind of city um, is not a good city for heat. It's, it's, it's a death trap because it uh, absorbs heat in those types of materials, those mineralized kind of surfaces, which is the asphalt, the cement, the concrete, glass, steel, all these like really hard surfaces that are not water permeable and that do not have natural aspects about them. Uh, they absorb heat and then they radiate heat at night. And as you said, that's the danger. That's the most dangerous t type of heat. And we also know that night temperatures are becoming hotter. Um, in 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 the Mediterranean as well, more hot than the, the it's they're rising faster than the day temperatures. Some reports show. So the night heat is really dangerous because the body never actually uh, re relaxes and never uh, manages to adjust its core temperatures to lower its core temperatures and to 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 sleep. So you're you're less able to cope with the heat of the next day. So you go to work particularly fatigued, but also your body and your organs, your internal organs have not managed to kind of lower their temperatures. So that becomes particularly dangerous. Um, so in cities that are like this, uh, we immediately know that the neighborhoods that are um, the, the poorest neighborhoods, the most kind of vulnerable socioeconomic neighborhoods, which are the neighborhoods that almost everywhere in the world have less green parks, um, worse quality in their infrastructure and worse quality in their buildings. Those neighborhoods are the ones that will, first of all, kind of take the burden of heat. And those people that live there are the people that we have to make sure to, to protect. You've said that we need to move away from the logic of carbon modernity. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
the Industrial Revolution brought together with it uh, a kind of um, aesthetics and a kind of logic that created our modern cities with efficiency and in a way a kind of democratization of of um, resources. So, you know, we had these buildings that suddenly had central heating and we had, you know, um, electricity. But at the same time, it was based at this crazy idea of unlimited resources. And most of all, it was based on the idea of unlimited fossil fuels that we can just use and abuse to do whatever we want. This type of city is the type of city that exists almost in a vacuum. Like we don't think anymore of what are the climate conditions that these cities exist in. And we build the same city more or less, whether we are in the south or whether we're in the north and just depend on fossil fuels to heat or cool them. And this is crazy because we've actually kicked a bucket full of knowledge from centuries of how we people had learned how to what kind of materials to use and how to build to deal with the local climate conditions in amazingly effective ways. We have to kind of get rid of the, the type of logic and aesthetics of modernity and start looking to other types of logics and bring other types of aesthetics into play when we design uh, our cities from this point onward. The ancient Roman aqueduct that runs through Athens was reactivated. Can you explain what it was originally designed to do and what it's going to do now? So this ancient Roman aqueduct that was built in 150 after Christ to bring water to the center of ancient Athens um, during the Roman times, which at the time at the time had a lot of demands on their uh, bathing and uh, spa. It was a big part of their social life. And then it continued to be used for for many centuries. Um, water that ran underground in this man-made extraordinary uh, engineering feat, which is unbelievable to think about it. They would dig wells and connect the spaces between the wells and they managed for 24 kilometers to keep it in a, in a perfect type of um, uh, inclination so that the water doesn't go too fast or too slow and continues kind of running for all these kilometers. And it's non-visible. It's underground. It's, it stopped being used for, for several decades now um, since the there was centralized uh, water supply for the whole of Athens. And recently we decided that we needed all types of backups for water supplies for, for Athens. And this was uh, a, an incredible amount of water that is not being used and today is thrown into the sewage, uh, which is good quality and it needs very little further filtering to be used for uh, irrigating green areas and for bringing water aspects to the surface uh, of the city so that uh, we can, in both cases, bring temperatures down. So essentially you're using, you're reactivating this underground pipe system and that that itself has a cooling effect on the city? Exactly. So if you use water uh, either to help plants grow or to bring it to the surface through any kind of open water source, be it, you know, misting or be it uh, water sprouts or all of this, especially in combination with green aspects with trees and uh, other types of plants, can bring temperatures down up to six or seven degrees Celsius. It really can make a, a difference between life and death. 
it, it, it's, it's a very significant lowering of temperatures. The more you have heat, the more you need water, right? And we know that this is, this is an important aspect for, uh, for evapotranspiration, which is this function that trees have, which lower temperatures. So trees don't just help us deal with heat because they provide shade, but because also they, they, they release little water droplets that evaporate and cool our, um, our surrounding areas. So, so trees are these amazing uh, natural cooling entities. One of the threads we're untangling in this episode is heat's disproportionate impact on women and girls. What are you seeing related to this in Greece and elsewhere in Europe? So in cities like Athens and in cities in Europe and North America, uh, women tend to be more exposed to heat uh, for several reasons. One of them is that we know through different reports that women um, you end up walking more than men. And they also women end up taking more public transportation than men. And they also have to do more trips than men often because they have to go shopping and they have to pick up the kids and they have to go and take care of the elderly and all that. So all of these things of caring, especially during times of crisis, like, you know, if you have a heat wave, uh, make women much more exposed to the heat wave and to um, conditions that can, um, can, can, can bring them to, to having physical problems, health problems. Um, so we also know that women that are pregnant are, are particularly vulnerable and not just them, but also the babies that they are carrying and the babies when they are first born are very vulnerable as well. So this whole kind of thing means that we have to start designing cities and transportation and uh, hospitals and uh, particularly places that deal with very young children and women that are pregnant in special ways and make sure that we have the right type of infrastructure that can support uh, women as well as men in our modern cities. And to turn it back, Ariana, to your, to your question, I just have to remind everyone that women are the ones that take care of every time that we have some vulnerable uh, person in the family or in the extended family. It's the women that will have to stay back, that will have to find the ways and the solutions and the resources to support these particular um, members of the family. And to, to take it a step further, that is why women are better at finding solutions for adaptation for heat. And we see them actually being at the forefront of solutions because they are the ones that have to deal with this much more than to quickly kind of escape it or find other ways of dealing with it. They have to create the conditions that will protect their loved ones and that the ones that are the most vulnerable. Eleni Midivili is the Global Chief Heat Officer for the UN Habitat. Thank you so much for joining us on Climate One. Thank you for having me. Northern Uganda is facing increasingly frequent and severe heat events due to climate change, with temperatures reaching above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Those periods of high heat particularly affect those who live in poverty and lack access to cooling technologies. However, there is an affordable, low-tech housing solution that's been used for generations. Contributor Helen Kabahukia brings us this story. Imagine a place where the sun blazes overhead and the air feels heavy and suffocating, where the sun burns your skin and you sweat as early as 10 a.m. This is the reality faced by the people of the northern part of Uganda, 
especially during the peak of the summer, when temperatures reach triple digits. Local residents Anna Ochaya and Achiro Rose say the high temperatures have many impacts. The sunshine has been too much, and our things are drying up. Nothing we have planted is progressing because the whole place is drying up. This is making the situation very hard because you can hardly even find food for the children. The weather is hot and there are a lot of diseases. We suspect that it is this hot weather that might be causing us some of these illnesses. The scorching heat affects women and children significantly. They are responsible for various household tasks and farming activities that expose them to the sun for hours. The region is still recovering from the 20-year civil war. Those returning home have worsened the deforestation to make way for development and farming, contributing to the heat waves. But Helen Ojara of the Choli culture says the ancestors knew better and the knowledge passed down generations has been pivotal in safeguarding people against the unforgiving heat through the construction of mud water houses. The advantage of this house structure is that once it is built, it is very comfortable for living. Now, imagine a huge tree, the shade, and the breeze it provides. As we step into one of the traditional mud water houses, we are greeted by the same feeling. Anna Ochaya, a resident of Baicho village in Gulu district, explains the benefits of traditional mud water houses over more modern iron-roofed homes. It's always cool and fresh. Even if it's hot outside, the grass makes the house cool because when you put it together, it doesn't heat up. Most houses have no windows or fans, but the wind gently passes through intentional gaps in the thatched roof and the wall of the house, bringing a cold breeze inside and providing much-needed relief from the heat. As modern structures begin to shoot up in the town areas, it's not uncommon to see one or two mud water houses in the same compound. Even though modern structures built of cement and burned bricks with corrugated iron roofs are seen as a form of wealth, people still rely on grass-thatched houses as spaces to cool off and store produce. In our knowledge as occupants of a grass-thatched house, we feel the temperature in our house is better, especially during this current situation of constant sunshine. Unlike a permanent house, which would be too hot to even sleep, a grass-thatched house is cooler, and a fresh breeze at night allows the house to remain constantly cool. This low-tech solution is affordable even to the poorest of communities. The materials are readily available in nature, and for those in the peri-urban areas, the grass comes as cheap as $1 per bandu. The unique construction techniques and choice of materials used in these houses have been passed down through generations. Asaba Morris explains the process. You first dig some soil, you mix it with water into mud. The mud should be thick and not too wet. Then you lay bricks. We use mud for stomping the flow, 
and laying foundation prevent running water from entering the house and avoid the floor from being too high. There is specific grass and techniques used in the roofing. The pampas grass, commonly known as the abia, is laid down while the maram or the elephant grass is laid on top. This type of grass can last for over 10 years if maintained well. When construction is done, cow dung is mixed with ash or soil to make a paste to carpet the walls and floors of the house. Achiro Ross says this provides insulation to the house and keeps dust from rising up, which protects them from dust-related diseases. It's as if it has been cemented. It remains neat and nice. These houses, with their ingenious design and natural materials, offer a sanctuary from the relentless heat, reminding us of the resilience and wisdom of local communities in the face of changing climates. For Climate One, I'm Helen Kawahokia in northern Uganda. Coming up, why it's important to center women when building heat resilience. We're in the market, we're in the schools, we're in the playground. When disaster strikes, women as caregivers um, suffer the most. We'll be right back. Just before the break, we heard about the natural cooling effects of traditional mud wattle houses in Uganda. Now we'll travel to Western Africa to hear my conversation with Eugenia Cargbo, Chief Heat Officer for Freetown, Sierra Leone. So I was born and raised in Freetown. Um, all my life I have my family here, I have my kids here. And growing up in Freetown, Freetown used to be very, very green with lots of green spaces, trees and flowers and, and plants just full of life and, and nature. And I remember I used to pluck fruits from the back of my compound because we have lots of fruit trees around us. Um, but in recent years, we've seen that beauty goes away. This is mainly due to migration, urban rural migration, which is as a result of climate impact, but also the uncontrolled development that we've seen. We've seen the city expand and the population more than double. A lot of the areas in the city where we've seen this expansion happening were marked by the World Bank as the disaster-prone areas. So Freetown is located geographically between steep hills, mountain, and the sea. So as the city expands, it expands into the forest areas and into the coastal line, which has led to massive deforestation um, of the forest areas and, and depreciation of the coastal areas. And we'll talk in a minute about also some of the informal settlements that have resulted, I think, from that same migration. But when you think about heat affecting your city, why are women maybe more vulnerable to heat than men? 
So in Freetown, everyone is exposed to extreme heat, but there are certain population groups and certain neighborhoods that are badly heat than others. So people living in the informal settlements, which are low-income earning communities, and people who are outdoor workers are also badly affected by extreme heat. The elderly, people who are disabled, but more so women. We've seen um, women badly affected by extreme heat. Majority of the people who are now living in these informal communities were once farmers from the rural areas who were mainly women. And we've seen extreme heat and climate change badly affect the agricultural sector. And because of the lack of productivity in crop production, a lot of these women left to find um, greener pasture and livelihood. And in Freetown, most of where they are now are disaster-prone areas. And the housing condition is also a major challenge. As majority of the houses um, within these informal settlements are built from corrugated iron sheets, which are called commonly called zinc. Most of the structure do not have any ceiling. So these women also suffer from indoor temperature directly by the sun's radiation. A lot of these women also are informal workers and they are outdoor workers. And mainly most of what they do is trading. They are traders. And because of the increase in population and the lack of resources to manage this growth, we've also seen a lot of open-air markets emerge. So areas or markets where there are no structures, there are no shade. So these women sell in the streets of Freetown every single day, exposed to the impact of extreme heat. And we know that prolonged exposure to heat cause several health implications and leads to productivity loss and economic loss. Are you saying a lot of the informal settlements where people live, they're like zinc walled, but there's no roof structure? And I would imagine that the metal wall also retains heat and probably reflects it or radiates that. So it probably makes those structures even warmer uh, in some cases. Is that true? Yeah. So um, in Freetown, 90% of the houses are built from either zinc or cement. And um, these are heat trapping materials that absorb the heat throughout the day. And during the night, these materials and these structures radiate the heat. So a lot of people are also suffering from from this, a lot of them, a lot of people in Freetown are talking about how they couldn't sleep because of the level of heat that they are also experiencing during the night. And we know that it is very important for our bodies to rest. And this just shows you the level of complexity and the level of the the the, the issues that. Um, this has on the human body when you talk about the mental health and when you talk about well-being. So in as much as people are suffering outdoors, they are also suffering indoors. Yeah. 
One of your main goals as chief heat officer is supporting the implementation of long-term heat risk reduction and cooling projects. And one of these is the Freetown Market Shade Cover Project. Can you explain that project and how it's been helping the community? So the Market Shade Cover Project is an initiative that is supported by the Hashbrook Resilience Center in partnership with the the city of Freetown. Um, The project was co-designed and co-created with local um, residents in Freetown community people, but also the market women themselves, based on an assessment that we did to understand the level of impact of heat exposure to women in the marketplace. And so the Market Shade Cover Project is our simple project that's made use of a material that is called a dampalone material. The dampalone material is a microcell polycarbonate um, panel. They are very lightweight and they are also reflective and semi-translucent. So um, it allows light and air to flow through. Um, The panels are installed on poles that are holding the sheets together. And these sheets have been installed in three of Freetown's major open air markets, providing shade and and protection to these women. And we've seen a lot of benefits through the single effort and simple solution. Um, When we talked to the women, they talked about how their goods and their products that they were selling are um, being um, are being badly affected by extreme heat because most of what they sell are fruits and vegetables, and when exposed to the to the sun, they perish. They also talk about how they've been affected by heat stress and how they couldn't um, stay in the areas where they are selling. They have to leave their market and and run for shade covers because of the heat they've been experiencing. And they also talk about how they suffer during the raining season from the rains. And so these shade covers do not only protect the women from the heat, it also helps to reduce the economic loss and increase productivity, but also helps to protect them during the rains. In addition to the shades, we also installed solar light underneath the cover to make use of the sun heat during the day and produce light for the women. This also has helped to expand the market hours of the women and create a safety net and serve as a safety net for the women. It's amazing to get so many benefits from that structure. So you have shade, reduced temperatures, increased economic benefit from not losing produce, and then the solar uh, light, so you have more security and longer hours. That's really a lot. Can you share a specific story of an individual woman whose life has changed because of these shade covers? So I spoke to the market chair lady. Her name is Ya Alamami, and Ya Alamami was the one that explained to us some of the issues that they face um, in terms of the losses. She told me that she finds herself always very far away from 
the market area seeking shade covers. Um, she feel as if she wants to bath like 10 times um, in the day. She talked about her head was always paining out because of the exposure to the sun. And she also talked about how relief they feel right now and the relief that the shade covers are providing not only to her but for all the market women and my own personal testimony was when some of the women came to me and told me we need this to be extended we need this to be expanded because there are a lot of other women who didn't benefit from the project because of it was it's the, the project is a pilot and um, we're only able to cover a certain portion of the market. And so they came to me and said, we are, um, we form a committee and we are putting funding together to see how best this covers can be expanded to other areas so that other women can benefit from this. What do you hope to change as you begin to scale it? So, um, after we implemented the project, we went back to the communities and to the market women to see what we can do to improve the um, living condition of women and to help reduce the impact of extreme heat. And whilst we're looking at the outdoor space, we're also looking at the indoor space. So for the outdoor markets, we're looking at improving the design um, of the market to cover a much more bigger and larger area. So instead of the rectangular design that we have now, we are looking at a tunnel-shaped design where both vendors and um, shoppers can be covered and protected um, from the heat. We're also looking at the indoor spaces as you also have a lot of structural markets, but because of the type of materials that we use and the way that the markets were designed, women also in those spaces suffer from extreme heat. So we're looking at how do we design a climate smart market, um, one that we can make use of the or transform the waste um, from the market into biomass, um, which can be used to, to power the structure of the market. We are looking at redesigning where we replace some of the windows and the doors with larger windows and doors to increase ventilation flow. We're also looking at the possibility to, um, to roll out um, a green roof where you can have like vegetables um, being grown at the top of the market and even the waste from the market can be used as a compost. And um, as I said, biomass can also power the market and have markets, um, a storage facility to further protect the goods that the women are selling. 60% of the waste that we produce in Freetown are organic waste and so they produce a lot of methane um, by converting the waste into biomass it helps to reduce the level of of methane and the green infrastructure will help to reduce temperature and reduce heat stress for the women in the market and this can also serve as a, a blueprint for for other african cities in different countries
Mm-hmm. That's really a powerful vision of a market that's so integrated like that, you know, recycling itself. Let's talk a minute about disease. How do heat and mosquito-borne illness compound each other? So studies have shown that heat exacerbates several disease burden. And one of the major health issues we have in Freetown is malaria. A lot of people dying from malaria, especially pregnant women. And studies have also shown that when temperatures are extremely high, people get angry and agitated easily. And that's the same for um, mosquitoes. So they tend to bite more when the temperatures are hotter and they tend to bite more people. So we've seen a lot of issues and um, increase in vector bone diseases um, such as malaria. And this is really affecting the health of, of women and, and children. Uh, I did not know that about it increasing, like the likelihood of them to bite. That's, that's interesting, disheartening. So as we wrap up here, I'm curious if you think there's anything in particular about being a woman that makes you a good chief heat officer, given that there are some of these disproportionate effects we've been talking about. Yes. So I think that it is very important and critical to have the voice of women because we understand the issues. I usually say that we're everywhere. We're in the markets, we're in the schools, we're in the playground. When disaster strikes, women as caregivers um, suffer the most. They have to take care of the kids. They have to take care of their husband. They have to take care of several other members of the family. So it's important that we also have a voice. Eugenia Cargbo is Chief Heat Officer for Freetown. On this Climate One, we've been talking about confronting the disproportionate impacts of extreme heat on women and girls. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, awkward, frustrating, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on topics including food, energy, EV, activism, and more. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Ariana Brocious. <laughs>